Hello. <clears throat> Good morning, noon or evening to everybody out in podcast land. <clears throat> this is <clears throat> sorry, Chat RFH, a very special 100th episode of Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist podcast. <clears throat> this podcast is <clears throat> produced by Marxist Humanist Initiative, but the views expressed by the hosts are solely their views. We're very, very happy to have reached 100 podcasts. We started about four years ago and have kept up a regular schedule. And here we are at number 100. you will, uh, if you've ever heard it, be familiar with the co-hosts, Brendan Cooney. Want to say hi, Brendan? Hey, hello, everybody. <laughs> and Andrew Kleiman. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. Um, yeah, hi, everybody out there in Radio Land <clears throat> and TV Land or whatever it is. <clears throat> okay. I just want to um, speak for them for one minute to tell you that they're very happy to be able to hear from you all out there. The major drawback of the standard podcast format is the lack of ability to engage with the listeners. Some of you write in, but not very many. So this special chat RFH is one thing we're going to try to overcome that problem. If it goes well, we'll consider doing similar chat episodes in the future. Why is it so important to MHI that we have your feedback and not only your opinion of what we said, but your contribution to furthering the dialogue? It's because we are based on the political and philosophic importance of dialogue as a way to work out ideas to test what's true and what's false. So it's essential to us that we have such a dialogue and we encourage you all to send in your questions and comments. They don't have to be questions. And we will read out as many as we can and the hosts will answer as many as they can. Uh, Brendan, you wanted to say something next? Yeah, so just wanted to talk a little bit about our chat procedures. Um, we're, Andrew and I are going to discuss, it, this is sort of an open discussion. We can talk about past things that we've talked about on the podcast or new topics if people uh, have questions on new topics. Um, so you're welcome to leave a comment or a question and the way to do that is through the Zoom chat. Um, I think Andrew's going to discuss the functions of that. Um, but, yeah, that's uh, what I'll do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, anything's open. Pe- people want to talk about uh, current events like the state of the um, Trump pros- prosecutions, uh, the upcoming U.S. presidential election, if people want to talk about the weather as then like climate change. Um, these are like, you know, things that are on my mind right now, but there are a lot of other things we could be talking about too. Andrew, do you want to describe to listeners how to interact with us through the chat function? 
Yeah, uh, but before I do that, you know, as Brendan said, um, the floor is open for whatever uh, questions or comments on whatever topic you, you want to chat about. Um, but he mentioned a couple of things that he's interested in talking about. One of the things that I'd like to talk about is uh, starting in two weeks, um, I'm going to be um, leading a two-part a class series uh, via Zoom on Henrik Grossman's uh, crisis uh, model and crisis theory, his breakdown theory. Uh, and so, like, you know, I'd be very interested in talking about that because that's what I'm working on at the moment. Um, and the other thing, you know, um, I'm very concerned about right now is the issue with the, the Trump prosecutions. Uh, everybody, right, middle, left, everybody has seem, seems to have accepted that the legal processes are not going to defeat Trump, much less Trumpism. Um, and, you know, nothing's going to stop him from being able to run for president, from undoing a conviction if he's elected. And then they say, so what we need to do, the real solution to this is to defeat him at the ballot box. And I'm like, hello, weren't you there in 2020? <laughs> uh, you know, the, the definition of insanity is doing something exactly the same way you did it before when it didn't work. Um so those are a couple of things that I'd be interested in talking about, but again, the, the, the floor is open. Uh, okay, so just a couple of issues regarding the, the chat. If you're not familiar with how to use it, uh, you know, it depends on your operating system and so forth, but there should be a series of icons at the bottom of your Skype screen, and maybe about the fourth icon from the left says chat. So to open your chat, just click on that icon and a window should appear to the right of the Skype screen. If you see something, some message covering the top of that chat window, look for where it says got it or something and just click and you'll see the whole thing. And there's a lot of stuff maybe, it depends on you know what you're seeing, uh, but there'd be a bunch of stuff at the top. Um, Messages, you know, comments, questions are going to be there in the middle and way, way down at the bottom. Okay, if you look, it says, who can see your messages? Recording on uh, whatever. And then you see where it says two, and you, you, you can send a message to MHI host. If you see where it says, pretty much right down there at the bottom where it says MHI host, that's who you'll be sending your messages to. And right under, the, under that, you, you write your message right over where it begins message, chat, RFH, and so forth. And then you can either just hit enter on your keyboard or uh, the little send arrow, which I see at least on the very bottom right. Um, all of the messages, your comments and questions are being moderated. So you're going to submit your messages to the MHI host. Uh, he's going to select some and post them in the chat. Uh, and we'll be reading them out and then we'll discuss them. Um, and the MHI host is also going to be posting in the chat window some of the comments and questions that were submitted ahead of time uh, to the uh, email account uh, for this uh, episode, the chat RFH email. And when 
deciding, selecting which of the submitted messages to discuss, we're taking into consideration whether they're appropriate, you know, not trolling or whatever. Uh, the length, please don't make them too long. Uh, the topic, we hope to have, have a variety of topics. Uh, and depending on, you know, how this goes, we might just not have time for everything. So uh, the, the, the chat is being moderated. We're going to try to get a, a variety. Uh, if what you're saying is relevant and appropriate, uh, you probably stand a good chance of uh, getting through. Okay. I forgot to introduce myself. I'm Ann Jaclard. I'm an organizational secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. I hold it all together. Uh, when I can. Uh, so we're going to start this discussion with reading out some greetings that we got from our um, special guests at prior uh, episodes of Radio Free Humanity. <clears throat> the first one I have is from Rohini Hensman, who's been on a couple of times, and she writes, Greetings and congratulations to Radio Free Humanity on the occasion of its 100th episode. In the approximately four years of its lifetime, it has covered both contemporary news and issues of vital importance to Marxist humanists with critical rigor, as well as nuance and subtlety. An indispensable resource for all those who question the platitudes of vulgar Marxism. Best wishes, Rohini. So thank you very much, Rohini. She didn't think she could be here today, but if she comes, she can speak up. <clears throat> uh, the next message of good wishes comes from Nick Rogers. He says, I won't be able to attend because I'm away on Sunday. However, I will catch up afterwards, and please feel free to read out or add the following greeting to the chat. And I'm trying to get it. Okay. Oh, jeez. Hold on one second. Congratulations to Radio Free Humanity on reaching your 100th episode and the contribution you've made to spreading and developing the ideas of socialism. Here is to the next 100 episodes, Nick Rogers. I hope it goes well. Thank you, Nick. And there's one more greeting from a uh, uh, someone who is uh, starred in two Radio Free Humanity episodes. That's Matt Hongold's Hetling. A huge congrats on your hundreds. I have both a question and a comment. The question, who was your favorite guest that talked about libertarians and bears and medical quackery? The comment, I thought it was great when we talked about libertarians and bears and medical quackery. But for reals, you bring such an important and interesting perspective to the issues of the day. I'm always impressed by your insights, and I know your audience will be there to hear episodes number 101 through 200. Okay, thank you, Matt. Uh, do we have any other greetings on the line here? <clears throat> 
Ah, here's a message from, oh no, it's our first question. Okay, is everybody ready for the first question? Yes. Very good. <laughs> well, we got a question from Matt Hungold-Tetling. Oh, I didn't think he really expected an answer. He, he, was, he was my favorite guest that talked about libertarians and bears and quacks. And he's also my least favorite guest that talked about the. He's the only one who talked about that with us because he wrote a book about that. Really, really great book on the libertarians and bears. Uh, libertarian walked into a bear and a re really great book on, uh, I think it's if it quacks like a quack or quacks like a duck or something about the, the medical quackery in, in relationship to COVID. Uh, but I'm really um, humbled and, and, and pleased by, by, by the three um, Greetings for, from from the guests, uh, Rohini, who she's been on two podcasts as, as well, one about her book and one about her intervention uh, concerning the war on, on Ukraine, uh, and Nick Rogers, uh, who talked about the special issue of uh, Journal of Global Fault Lines uh, on the, the idea of socialism in the, in the, for the 21st century. Uh, so you know, and and Matt. So I'm re really honored to uh, to just I'm just kind of choked up by by their very generous greetings. Okay, uh, unless Brendan wants to comment on the greetings. No, no go ahead, Anne. Why don't you read the? Yeah, the first let's question. start the questions. This first one comes from Van Sewell. Congratulations on episode 100. What was the original inspiration motivation for the Radio Free Humanity podcast? Um, Do you remember, Brendan? I, I, I have my own memory, but it might not be the same as your memory. And I don't know. That's always... exactly what I was thinking. So why don't you go first? <laughs> Well, I think that there was some discussion going on in, within MHI about starting a podcast, but things weren't really getting off the ground. And I think might have been one of the last times I saw you in person before the pandemic, Andrew. We were at, the, at a left forum afterwards having dinner somewhere. And I said, why don't we just kind of restart this podcast thing? And, and the two of us will just kind of get it going and we'll just see what happens. And so I put together a proposal and, but I don't, I don't want to bother people with the technical de details of how we got things moving, but I believe the idea was to provide for one, just an alternative forum for um, people within MHI to advance Marxist humanist um, writings uh, in, a, in a different format in an audio format since podcasts are so popular now. But also to give a little more of a chance for us to um, comment on current events, on things that are happening uh, every week or every month in the world politics, um, and and just kind of be a little more on top of the, I don't want to say news cycle, but on top of the pulse of what's happening in the world. Um, I think also I one of my thoughts was that you know andrew you've written so many great 
you've written on so many different topics and I was hoping just to find a for I, I was hoping we could make a format where you could um I think that you, Andrew, you are very careful and conscientious and scholarly about how you prepare your written material for publication, even if it's just um, an article for the with sober senses. But even if it's just an email message to you, yeah. yeah even if it's just an email <laughs> message, it's like extremely carefully, you know, written out. And um, but then sometimes when we've talked informally. I will hear you talk about other things that I've never seen you write about, because probably if you were under the obligation to write about them, it would take you a lot of prep preparation to, to do those things. And so I thought, well, if it, 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 this sort of more informal podcast format might provide a forum for you to share some of those thoughts you have on a wide variety of topics without kind of having the, um, the pressure to like uh, uh, do all of the research and and thinking to create like a perfectly written argument on paper. You know, does that make sense? It makes sense to me. I mean, that's so, exactly what, what, what yeah. you told me. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, you, my memory of all this is, is basically in tune with you. Uh, I, I, if I remember, we were talking about you know the possibility of doing this podcast. You and I were. Uh, at the same time, I was telling you about the uh, the history of MMT, modern monetary theory, and Warren Mosler and all of that, which yeah. is kind of shocking. Um, but yeah, see, my original idea was to do like uh, Ben Shapiro watch and Jordan Peterson watch and Rick Wolf watch, where you know we would like look at what these people say and call them out. And, you know, so I said, look, I can do it if I get people to research this. It wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. Uh, Brendan did something. It wasn't happening. Um, so eventually, Brendan and I are there and we're like, well, look, if this is going to happen, it's going to be us. I think, you know, that's what Brendan said to me or something. And I go, yeah, it's going to be us. So, you know, let's try it. So we tried it and, you know, we just keep keep trying it. I mean, it's like uh, sometimes I'm amazed and I think Brendan's amazed that we managed to get through, you know, one episode and, oh, my God, now we look forward to the next. We don't have a guest. We don't have anything. Um, but, you know, so we don't have this Rick Wolf watch and we don't have the Ben Shapiro watch. But to a large extent, the podcast has turned out to be like Jacobin watch and Trump world watch. Um, so, you know, some of that 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 critical function uh, is it is part of the podcast series. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to take another message. This one from Darren Poynton in England. Congratulations on reaching 100 episodes. My question is, how do you conceive of freedom? And how does this conception affect your activities and the content of the podcast. Many thanks, Darren Poynton. <clears throat> okay. Um, 
the, I, um, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. No, no, no. I, I, I always go back to the way Marx put it. You know, freedom is so much the essence of human beings or the nature of human beings, the essence, uh, that freedom has always existed. You know, it's, it's always there. The only difference is sometimes it's the special privilege, let's say, of the king, you know, the ruling class or whatever. So sometimes freedom exists as a special privilege, you know, but then there's also freedom as universal right. So, you know, we, we talk about freedom, but you know, what we're really for is freedom of humanity as a whole, freedom as a universal right. Um, but it's not just like legal, political freedom. It, it also has to do with the expansion of human capacities uh, and talents and, and, and so forth. And that, that emerges historically. Uh, and, you know, the species is not what it was, you know, 100,000 years ago. So, you know, we have the capability of being a lot more free than we were because we can know a lot more. We can do a lot more, you know, we can extend our, uh, the, the tools given by our bodies, you know, our hands and our arms and our legs. We've got all kinds of, of tools and so forth. The problem is we've got a social system and a mode of production, capitalism, that is thwarting that for a very simple reason. It's not what it's about. Capitalism is not about universal freedom. So why would it provide universal freedom? So um, this is how I conceive of the issue of freedom today. How does this affect the activities and the content of the podcast? I hope that this is, you know, what we orient the podcast around uh, in every way, either directly or indirectly, you know, this struggle for freedom. Um, and... It's, again, directly or indirectly. I mean, I do a lot of things that don't seem to be about freedom, like, you know, preparing a list of who's been a guest on the, the podcast. But indirectly, every, everything is, is, is really about that. I, I think a lot of the topics that we are covering on the, well, first of all, um, like this is an essential part of what we're trying to do on the podcast um, is to not just treat topics in isolation not just to like have a guest on that is interesting to listen to um but to develop marxist humanism as a philosophy and to engage directly with what's happening in the world and um to develop those ideas in in that engagement with things so a lot of the topics that we've engaged on over the past hundred episodes have um, had this question of the struggle for freedom uh, at the center of that engagement, whether it be um, discussing the concept of self-determination in relationship to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, whether talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, um, whether uh, talking about the struggle against post-truth and all the different dimensions of that, because of course, like the um, so essential to freedom is the idea that um, humans can use their, their, uh, can use reason to, um, to further their, their, uh, their freedom, 
and if we um move backwards into superstition and like emotive thinking uh intuitive thinking then we're kind of working against those uh that that potential for freedom uh in civilization um fight pushing back and, and reacting to the um sort of denude the, the way that freedom was used during the covid pandemic by the right as a completely denuded denuded concept that was just reduced to like the right to be an asshole to other people um and the way like the the concept of like um freedom almost became like the opposite of turned into its opposite by the trumpite uh base or in, by the trumpite politicians during the covid pandemic um and trying to articulate uh the the need for uh, a different notion of freedom that isn't just like the freedom to give you disease if i don't feel like wearing a mask um so there have been so many different ways that this quite basic question which is like really at the center of marxist humanism has pervaded a lot of the discussions we've had okay uh let me just remind our listeners that if they want to submit a question to the host at the very bottom of the chat there's a space to direct message and you just write it in there, send it off with a little arrow on the right, and it will get to our moderator who is picking the questions for us. I'm going to read another one. This one's from Francisco Palacios in Latin America. He says, I learned a lot that I didn't, didn't expect on your episode on Chomsky's anti-imperialism. I was surprised to see that his positions on imperialism are basically Stalinist, but worldwide he's flaunted as one of the main intellectuals of anarchism. Why do you think that Chomsky's positions aren't really challenged within anarchism? And the other, um, on the other hand, do you think there is something within anarchism um, that permits these theories and authoritarian personalities to dominate shouldn't anarchist anarchism being one of the more radical theories be fortified against these kinds of de derailments it's a there's a lot of good questions in there i mean i think <laughs> one um i just i think that there i can't remember all the things we discussed on that Chomsky episode. And there were a few different times that Chomsky came up, but there was like, there were some anarchists who were critiquing Chomsky on this very point early in the Ukraine war. And I remember- And one of them we had on the podcast, oh, Bill okay, Weinberg. We, we had two oh, right, episodes on Chomsky. Yeah, right, right, First right. of all, Bill Weinberg, you know, did his takedown of Chomsky going back you know, I don't know, decades. That was a whole episode. And then we had David Columbia on talking about both Chomsky's politics and Chomsky's linguistics. Mm -hmm. So there, we had Rohini Hensman yeah. on talking yeah. about it. And there was some anarchist who had written something criticizing Chomsky. I feel like maybe we even 
talked about that written thing we found somewhere and i can't remember now so anyway oh, yeah, not, yeah 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 it's not like that all anarchists are with chomsky on this in fact it seems like he's gotten more criticism during this ukraine stuff than he has in the past just to be fair but it, it is a good question um i i mean i think i my, my my first instinct in answering that is just that the anti-imperialist kind of politics are just so um, easy to fall into, especially if you live in the U.S. and you're just so used to, for decades, fighting against U.S. imperialism. It's just really hard to get out of that mentality and like understand that there are other bad actors on the global stage. Um, and, and to get out of this idea that like all of geopolitics can be, re be reduced to the U.S. versus other people. Um, it just, I think it's hard for people to get out of that mentality, whether or not they're a, regardless of where they identify in the political spectrum. That's my, my first instinct. I don't know. What do you think, Andrew? Yeah, I basically ag agree. Um, I, th I think, you know, I mean, so Bill Weinberg is is an anarchist. He's, you know, died in the wall, 100% anarchist, and he absolutely loathes, you know, everything that, that Chomsky stands for. But I mean, part of it is all kinds of people call themselves anarchists, and they mean all kinds of things. The late yeah. David Graeber, you know, is supposedly anti-state, but like, you know, when the uh, the Great Recession happens, he's basically, you know, on democracy now and everywhere else, you know, coming just to the line of explicitly advocating, you know, the kind of uh, uh, policies, uh, Keynesian policies that the, the, the you know, all the statist uh, leftists were, were, were recommending. So, I mean, basically, I think one has to come up to the, the point where you say anarchism is not a total philosophy. It's not a total outlook. You know, it, it, it focuses on one thing. And that one thing just isn't sufficient. It doesn't carry the day. It's not a substitute for, you know, a total philosophy or outlook. So I think that that's uh, part of it. I think that, I mean, you know, the dominant thing, though, is there is just like, you know, the cookie cutter standard left politics, you know, knee jerk anti imperialism, you know, which is pseudo anti imperialism, like uh, Brendan said. But, um, I mean, the other look, the other the other thing that, that goes on in anarchism, and this was uh, promoted in particular by David Graeber, is, you know, what we do is we unite on the basis of action. You know, we don't unite on the basis of ideas because that's divisive. And, you know, your ideas are your business. You know, he said this like in almost this is almost in a, a direct verbatim quote he wrote this in new left review you know so you know uh, discussion of ideas is implicit you know our ideas is implicit and we want them to stay that way so what you think is your business you're not going to ever convince anybody totally they're not going to ever convince you totally um so there, there's never a testing of ideas so wherever anybody's coming from that just sits there's nothing within this 
way of uh, organizing and being an anarchist to uh, separate the wheat from the chaff, the true from the false, the, the you know, forward moving from the reactionary. Okay. Should we move to the next question? Yeah, let me go to the next question. Okay. I'm waiting for the next question. Okay, here's one from Ravi Bali in England. You have spent a lot of time discussing Trump and Trumpism. How do you respond to the accusation that you are suffering from Trump derangement syndrome? Hosts? Um, is that an accusation? That, I mean, is that an abstract accusation or... Can I go somewhere to see someone accusing Radio Free Humanity of having Trump derangement syndrome? I guess. Um, I don't know. Maybe don't he'll know. write again. Yeah. Is um, TDS in the DSM? <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. Trump is good at like gaslighting people whenever they uh, come close to realizing what reality is. I just crazy that. Um, I guess people, Jews during the Holocaust had Hitler derangement syndrome. I don't know. It's just ridiculous that, that this, this idea that we're going to call people who are opposed to Trumpism, uh, like somehow irrational actors, um, like there is reality. I think we're trying really hard to understand it and live in it. And it's very clear that there is a war against that reality or people's ability to understand reality. And that's, you know, all the stuff that Trump has a certain genius for all the, the, the terms he has a genius for creating, whether it's calling real news, fake news, uh, or calling people that are interested in reality, the ones who have derangement syndrome, uh, is just all like Aurelian fascist propaganda. There's no substance to it as a, um, and it's also just a way of like dismissing people's people's uh, criticism or people's ideas. So you don't listen to it and you just label it as something that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, the people who in 2015 and 2016 seemed like, you know, chicken little, the sky is falling. Well, we were right. The sky was falling. You know, the liberal democracy is in serious danger around the world, especially in the United States. You know, I mean, it sounded like people were exaggerating, but Trump has surpassed the wildest exaggerations about what he might do. Uh, with the one exception yet is, uh, you know, during his first term, uh, he didn't manage to rain nukes down on anybody. Uh, hopefully he won't get a second term. Uh, but the, the worst came to pass again and again and again, and it's not going away. So, I mean, where where is the derangement there? Uh, this is not a rhetorical question, Ravi. So you can, you know, if, if, if you heard this, you know, you can dox the people that you heard it from. We can go there and, you know, gun them down or whatever. Just kidding. Um, no, I forget what I was going to say. It is remarkable how many people have stuck on the left have stuck to, I mean, I think most people 
have understood the danger of Trumpism and the threat to democracy, but there still are people who have clung to various versions of this um, minim this approach of minimal minimalizing the threat of Trumpism for various reasons. And I just find that so shocking. I don't quite understand what sort of headspace you have to be in to continually like deny the existence of something that's right in front of your face. I just don't understand how people can do that on a day to day basis, uh, unless they have like a lot to, to gain from it personally, maybe someone like Chris Coutrone, who's like, you know, just dug in on a position because his like intellectual represent intellectual intellectual uh, reputation is uh, um, attached to that position or something, you know, but it, I just I don't know. I don't know. But we also live in this world where people are able to deny the existence of reality. Um, despite uh, huge evidence against it. And I feel like we can't just expect um, that things will get bad enough that they will realize they're wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is the problem with like climate denialism. I think I, I I still have this instinct when I see that like the weather is insane all summer long. I have this this like intuition that it means that people will realize that climate change is real, but and that I have to com continually disabuse myself of that fantasy because a large amount of America, I can't quote the percentage, but a large percentage of Americans do not believe in climate change. And I don't think they're going to change their position, even if they, you know, their house, the forest fires consume their house, hurricanes flood their town, they get third degree burns from touching the sidewalk, you know, like, uh, uh, regardless of what happens to them, they're going to still deny that reality. So, I mean, I guess that's why, like, philosophical debate and engagement on real ideas is so crucial, is because we can't just assume that reality itself will make people face their delusions with sober senses. Like, there needs to be some kind of intervention. Okay, I think Ravi has answered his own question or your question to him, he adds a note here. It's an accusation that soft on Trump leftist level at MHI. Hmm. Right. So the problem Trump, is Trump derangement syndrome. Yeah. Well, soft on him. Yeah. I mean, they, they, I think they're suffering from Trump appeasement syndrome yeah. and, and, and left firstism. And basically, you know, Brendan talked about the, 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 the whole thing on the left whereby they minimize the danger of Trumpism, and it's absolutely true. The issue is, why do they do that? The, the reason is, you know, because they got to create their brand and they, they got to differentiate, they've got to differentiate their brand from, let's say, the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party, you know, and the resistance, you know, those are liberals and those are this and those are that. So they, they, they got to be different. They got to have, you know, their issues because, you know, the future of humanity depends on, you know, 10 more people 
10,000 more people joining, you know, their organizations, supposedly. Um, you know, I mean, that, that's part of it. And the other is, you know, the threat to freedoms, uh, the threat to liberal democracy, you know, voting rights and so forth. Those things have never been the issues of a lot of people on, on the, who call themselves on the left. Uh, and that's, you know, the, disturbing and that's been disturbing for uh, for for decades but you know if if your your whole shtick is income redistribution you know by any means necessary then you know a lot of people i think would uh, who call themselves on the left would like to have a benevolent uh, dictatorship to to impose something like that uh they don't come out and say that but you know look at how often they don't talk about issues of uh, human rights, of uh, you know, liberal democratic rights, uh, and, and so forth. Um, so uh, I, I think we have no uh, alternative. But when they sling accusations, you know, to say when you point a finger, four fingers are pointing back at you. When we got to give it to them four times. Yeah, it does. Go ahead. Well, it just get it does get to this question of like uh, freedom as like an orienting principle for liberatory politics over some sort of other orientation. And I think Andrew is right that because there are a lot of people on in parts of the left that had this orientation where there are things that they want to do as leftists that are basically like social de democracy, income redistribution programs. And things that are not that they just dismiss as distractions, you know, cultural issues, distraction issues, abortion has been, uh, you know, the right to have an abortion has been derided as a distraction issue for a long time. Um, you know, they call it, they have all these different terms for dismissing them. And, and even the terms they use are like very um, kind of elitist. Um, you know, the cause call something like the right to an abortion to dist a distraction from the real issues um, or to cause call like, uh, you know, uh, um, fight against racism or concerns about authoritarianism as distractions is just very uh, elitist and, and insulting to a lot of people who whose lives whose whose day to day freedom is like impinged on by those things. Um, so that's. I mean, that's what I think hopefully a philosophical discussion can get to these like root differences between perspectives. And then people can think about what sort of philosophical perspective is um, appropriate for real libertarian politics. Um, but when we just like label people's positions with like um, buzzwords like Trump derangement syndrome or whatever, you know, the, 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 we're not really doing anything philosophically. We're just kind of creating um, like hashtags to label things and put people in categories in like the um, sort of juvenile cat fights uh, uh, for the internet. All right, here's a not unrelated question from Toroff Dasler. Recent episodes discuss the way the Trumpite base thinks and that many people are not willing to be persuaded in debates and do not like changing their views. 
Can we discuss the reasons for that thinking a bit more? Well, but this is, by the way, something we're going to keep talking about uh, on the, the podcast series. Uh, we've got uh, a couple of guests uh, who are going to be uh, on the podcast uh, in, in next in, within the next few episodes. The authors uh, of a book, When Bad Thinking Happens to Good People, both co-authors are going to be uh, on the podcast and they have their views. And um, I mean, this is something that nobody really knows the answer to if there is indeed one answer. That's what I would say. This is something, whenever I see anything about this, I, I you know, pay attention and, and I read it. Um, but I think that the way that Taroff posed the issue is exactly right. And, and that people often don't pose it this way and the discussion doesn't move as far forward as it could because it gets posed in less helpful ways. So let me see exactly how he put it. Uh, they do, they're not willing to be persuaded in debates and do not like changing their views. Okay, so I, I think that that's exactly the right way to put it. And basically, Here's a thing that I think is underappreciated when we talk about what people believe, what people don't believe. To a philosopher, belief means something very particular, very uh, clean cut, having to do with facts and evidence. You know, you've got a statement uh, and it's a proposition. So that means it could either be true or it could be false. So you have a proposition. And if you believe that it's true, you believe it, okay? You believe what the proposition says. If you think it's false, you don't believe what the proposition says. I think that a lot of the people in the world, maybe a majority, God, you know, who, know, who knows, but a lot of people don't go through life thinking in terms of propositions and whether they're true or false, okay? It's like belief in God. You know, belief in God is like not, well, for most people, I think it's not, you know, there is a supernatural being that does exist, you know, in real time. And I believe as a factual proposition in that. I'm sure there are people who, who think like that. But for a lot of people, belief in God is like, you know, belief in God, the way it uh, Terry Eagleton put it is, you know, people believed in God the way I believe in you. You know, I got like confidence in you. People have faith in God, confidence in God. They've got belief. They've got, you know, belief that Trump is right. It has very little to do with, you know, the factual content of what he says when it is understood as propositions. Now, what do we do about that? Okay, I, I think that that's really dominant. What do we do about that? We can either say, okay, we got to like, you know, uh, open ourselves up to a whole different language game, you know, a whole other mode of discourse. Or we could say, 
yeah, okay, that's all well and good. But, you know, when you need bridges that you have to cross, you know, when you need bodies that need to be healed, when you need a social system, you know, that needs to be repaired and overthrown, et cetera, et cetera. One way of going about things is at best not very useful and at most extremely harmful. Uh, and, you know, I don't think we're going to convince the people who like to rely on their gut intuitions and what feels good to them, you know, uh, but we have to reach, I think, or try to reach those people who will say, yeah, we got to state propositions and see whether the content of those statements is true and false. That's that's the only hope I, I think for humanity. Uh, you know, I'm not saying instead of the struggle for socialism, you know, it's got to be part of that. Uh, and certainly, the struggle for socialism cannot move forward in this day and age in this post-truth environment unless it unless it's battling that because it's it's strangling all of us. Um, I, I don't have an answer there. Just a thought that might help move the conversation a bit forward. I would just add that, you know, a lot of people on the Trumpite base, their beliefs aren't really, I, you know, I agree with Andrew that their beliefs aren't really discrete beliefs. They're more like statements of allegiance. And we've seen that so many times in the past, you know, whatever, seven years or so, that issues will come up and especially around like the big example is the Black Lives Matter movement where it hadn't been worked out yet what the Trumpites relationship was to that issue for I don't know weeks or months and we saw like polling really shift once the messaging around the Black Lives Matter became one in which um, the the Black Lives Matter movement was considered uh, um, I don't know whatever they call it woke or um, uh, anti-cop or whatever it was um, then all of a sudden uh, we saw the polls really swing and have a really clear um, lines drawn between the, the Trumpite base and the rest of the country on that issue um, climate change is an issue like that climate change used to be like a accepted scientific fact and then oil companies you know uh, started this PR campaign specifically appealing to the type of demographic base we now refer to as the Trumpite base. They were pitching their anti-science messages to older white men who were, what do they call it, um, not information seeking uh, and, and, and pitched that message to them. Weren't able to, they were able to like kind of change the, the people's orientation to truth such that people stopped believing in reality and, and identified with um, climate denialism. But it's, I think a lot of these things, you, know, you, you obviously we've talked about this before in the podcast, you see like some poll comes out, 44% uh, of Americans believe X and X is like some ridiculous thing, you know? Um, it's not, is it really that they believe that or are they responding that way to polls because they think that that is the way to support Trump? by saying they believe that you can drink bleach to cure COVID or you believe in 
whatever crazy nonsense that that Trump said that week. Um, so so when people's when people's beliefs are reduced to just tribal allegiance signals of allegiance, it becomes really difficult to have conversation. You, you, we, I mean, I'm not the only person saying this, right? It's just like um, a symptom of like a real, real social disorder, real breakdown of the social fabric, um, because it's really difficult to have conversations and to have any advancement uh, as a in civil society in politics when everything is just about um, uh, uh, taking sides and uh, and fighting for power. It's just like a pure politics of power. And there's nothing, um, it's very difficult for the kind of thing we want to do where we're, we're trying to actually engage with ideas and have truth be a standard. And it's extremely difficult to do that. And I, I don't think anyone really knows how to solve those issues right now. Um, yeah, and, and even what some political scientists, I think mostly political scientists, are trying to do is when they get answers to survey questions about what people believe in this and that, they've even got a term. I think it's something like expressive responses, you know, where people are expressing themselves. They're being performative when they give answers to survey questions rather than you know, making a statement about the truth value of a proposition. So they've even designed like tests to try to tell what is going on. Is this an expressive response, you know, just performative or people actually saying, you know, I believe that the ballot boxes were, were tampered by the Italians or God knows what, right? Um I don't think their tests are very good at discriminating against that, but at least at least they're trying, and at least people are, you know, becoming more aware of this issue of like, you know, just asking people what they believe. It's not like obvious what that means at all. I mean, that's the key thing to to take away from this is when somebody says I believe this, or they say this is the way it is. You know, don't take a face value that you know what they're saying. Mm. <clears throat> and um, in the same vein, Gabriel Donnelly asks, I was wondering if you could say more about how we can't rely on people who rely on their gut intuitions. Isn't so much of the left as it exists now completely reliant on appealing to those intuitions? Crude Johnsonism and Taylorism and Grossmanism all do this. <clears throat> um, I'm not sure what he uh, he means by crude Johnsonism. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm not going to accuse C.R. James, you know, J.R. Johnson, uh, of that uh, without knowing more. You know, tailism means, I guess, tail ending uh, foreign dictators, uh, you know, like Putin or tail ending, I don't know, it could be the Democratic Party. Uh, Grossmanism, yeah. Um, definitely Grossmanism relies on intuition um 
you know, Grossman understood a lot, but he made a fatal flaw. Uh, he takes over this uh, scheme of reproduction from Otto Bauer, says it shows the economy breaks down. Uh, well, the he knows that the, the scheme of reproduction doesn't work. It's you know, a toy, it needs to be modified. So he says, okay, I'm going to modify it. But hey, you know, after I modify it, the system still breaks down. But what? That conclusion that after he modified it, the system still breaks down, that was just based on his intuition. He didn't do any calculations or anything. So that that's the fatal flaw. And, and I think uh, more generally, the appeal of Grossmanism today relies on a lot of intuitions, you know, just like the intuition that everything's falling apart. Okay, so the economy's got to break down, right? Why? Because, well, it can't keep, you know, getting worse and worse and keep going on. Well, that's an intuition. Um, but also there are mathematical intuitions that are wrong, I think, that are involved in this. Like, uh, okay, you, you have like the value of the commodities and part of it uh, is recovery of the amount laid out on means of production, the constant capital. And part of it's the recovery of the amount laid out in wages and part of it's profit. Now imagine that over time, the constant capital part gets bigger and bigger and bigger as a share of the total price of the commodities. And imagine that keeps on going, 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 going forever. Eventually, use your intuition, what does that constant capital share of the price of the product or the value of the product have to be? How big of a percentage of the price or value of the total product? Use your intuition. Now, don't use your intuition and think about it. And I'm, I'm not going to tell you the answer. Maybe I'll tell you in the second hour here. Okay, but it's really dangerous to lose to, to use your, your intuitions. Uh, there was, uh, I think it was at Caltech, there was a professor or maybe he was like a, a provost or dean or something. Anyways, some guy said, you know, uh, don't rely on your intuitions when you don't have them. You know, and he was basically saying, you know, with regard to certain scientific and mathematical intuitions, certain people did not really uh, know enough to have any intuitions about the subject matter that would uh, serve them well. Um, intuitions yeah. are bad. You just have to not rely on them. Absolutely. It's just like people say emotions, like, oh, these rationalists are against emotion. No, no, no. I mean, you, you go back and you look at you look at Plato and, and, you know, he's saying, look, without emotions, there wouldn't be anything, you know. So, yeah, you've got to have emotion. You, you do have intuition and it, it, it can be helpful. It can, you know, alert you to things you would not otherwise see or you could maybe see them faster. But it's not a check. It's not a test of what's true and false. It's not a substitute for what's true and false. You want to know what's true and false, you, you got to do some real testing, not rely on, on the intuitions. That's that's the whole problem. And that, that is the way uh, Gabriel put it, you know. But um, 
I mean, so it's the reliance on intuition and it's all the forces out there that are having people rely on their intuitions. And, you know, they don't have to say, I rely on you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make you rely on your intuitions. But when people put forward content and they just give a kind of a hand-waving justification of it, that's not a real demonstration you know, maybe it's not always appropriate to do that, but it's got to come in somewhere, a real demonstration of what you're saying. If that's lacking, then you're basically saying, oh, I just want people to like, like what they like, don't like what they don't like, rely on their intuitions. So people are encouraging that really um, unhelpful and lazy way, way of thinking. Um, and so, yeah, there's too much reliance on intuition and too much tolerance for reliance on, on intuition, in my view. Okay, um, let's uh, take one more question and then have a, a break for um, you to, to have a break. <laughs> It'll be about three minutes long, but first let's do Teresa H's question. <clears throat> On the topic of Ukraine, the podcast has talked about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, campism, imperialist economism, and pseudo-imperialism a number of times. I agree with positions of the hosts and MHI's editorial from last year. Yet I've, I've been unable to respond sufficiently to the criticism I've encountered. How would both of the hosts respond to the claim coming from the anti-war left that supporting the Ukrainian resistance means playing with the possibility of nuclear war? It's <clears throat> a good question. Um, I guess the question is like what the al alternatives are. I mean, that 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 would be my first thought. Uh, what are the alternatives to um, if if you're not supporting the resistance and you're basically letting Russia take over Ukraine, um, and you think that you're and if your logic was just that we have to let Russia take over Ukraine in order to avoid nuclear war. Um, I don't think there's any reason to think that Russia is, that Putin's going to stop with Ukraine. And that the, I don't think there's any reason to think that, that some future nuclear uh, standoff is going to be like, um, it, it, it's not going to happen because Putin's going to be dissatisfied by taking over Ukraine. Um, so I, I just don't see the there is a danger of nuclear war, but I don't see it like going away because Putin's allowed to take over Ukraine. I, I agree with that. And also, I mean, uh, I mean, try, try to understand the, the thinking of, of, of people who, who talk like this. Okay. It would be Putin that would be, you know, launching uh, nuclear war. Okay, so the possibility of nuclear war is coming from Putin. So let's not deal with the cause, Putin, you know, let's uh, appease Putin 
throw the Ukrainians to the dogs, you know, sacrifice them so that the rest of us, you know, can feel safe. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. I am not willing to throw other people, you know, they're striving for national self-determination. I'm not willing to throw them under the bus, you know. I don't want nuclear war, but the, so the point is we have to do what we can to prevent nuclear war, but not at the cost of, you know, telling other people, you know, to to sacrifice themselves, you know, not not at the cost of refusing to stand in solidarity with their, you know, struggle for national self-determination. So we have to have two things at once and we have to work out how we can prevent nuclear war in particular uh, while standing with, you know, the, the Ukrainians battle to free their country from imperialist invasion. And the best way is to topple the Putin regime, okay, to encourage the forces in Russia. Unfortunately, a lot of them are now in exile, okay, to, um, to take back their country from the Putinites. Okay, that, that I think is, is, is the perspective. Uh, what I would love to see, uh, and, you know, to some extent it happened in the, the 1930s in Spain, you know, you had the, the Falangists, Franco, but you had international armed support, you know, from socialists and, and others uh, from abroad who were helping, you know, the Spanish democracy defend itself. Unfortunately, they lost, but they gave it a good try, defend itself from fascism. You know, what I would like to see uh, is that that international support, you know, to encourage the, the, the freedom fighters that, that might, might be able to rise up then in, in, in Russia. To some extent, there is some, you know, popular foreign support within Ukraine for the, for the Ukrainians, too. But, uh, you know, you, 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 yes, we have to prevent nuclear war, but not at the cost of, you know, us telling other people they got to sacrifice the, their freedom and national self-determination. Who are we to tell them? Okay. Um, are we ready for break now? Yeah, we'll you're do gonna, a quick three-minute break. Huh? Three minutes, yeah. And you'll hear from me talking about MHI. So let's go. We'll be back. Bye-bye, boys and girls.
Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Okay, um, let us uh, continue. Um, um, uh, Teresa wanted to correct a statement where it appeared she was talking about anti pseudo anti imperialism uh, or imperialism. She was talking about pseudo anti imperialism. And along the same lines here, Stephanie Levy asks, please describe or define what is pseudo-anti-imperialism and what is authentic or real anti-imperialism. Oh, we don't have Brendan back. <clears throat> Andrew, do you want to start? I'll, I'll give a partial comment. Sorry, I was muted. Um, uh, what I would suggest is reading uh, Roni Hensman's book on this, uh, which I believe is called Indefensible. Uh, 
And we did uh, an episode of Radio for Humanity uh, with her speaking about the book. Uh, we went into it at you know, some length, and she basically defines what she means. But one way you can tell that uh, so-called anti-imperialism uh, is pseudo is that it's partial. You know, and typically uh, it's against Western imperialism, U.S. imperialism, but like not Putin's imperialism against the Ukrainians, you know, uh, etc. Uh, this goes on again and again throughout the world. Uh, now, the pseudo anti-imperialists give a you know, response to that, and they always, uh, or typically they say, oh, it's, you know, that's not imperialism. Well, why is, you know, that not imperialism? Why is it only the imperialism when the U.S. is, you know, doing bad things against other nations, you know, or countries allied with the U.S.? And they always talk about export of capital, and that means, you know, foreign investment. So supposedly, you know, Lenin defined imperialism as export of capital, uh, you know, this foreign investment, and therefore it's not imperialism unless the country is, you know, engaging in foreign investment in the uh, country that it's dominating. Well, first of all, you know, I think Ronnie Hensman is right that Lenin uh, his phrasing was not the best in his pamphlet, but that's not what he did. It's not what he said. He didn't define imperialism in, in, in those terms and say, you know, if there is not foreign investment, then it is not imperialism. Uh, he, Lenin talked about like uh, the U.S. Uh, War of Independence, uh, you know, 1776 and all that. He, he said that that was a struggle against British imperialism and the, the, the Americans to be were being aided by another imperialist power, which was was France. So, you know, and that had nothing to do with foreign investment and stuff. So uh, the, 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 the pseudo-ness of, of the anti-imperialism, uh, I think, can be tested by seeing that it's one-sided. And whenever you start to hear people going on excessively, you know, exclusively about uh, this so-called export of capital, in particular, when they use that phrase, that's a, that's a tip-off. Okay, if you really want to be genuinely anti-imperialist, genuinely anti-imperialist, you got to stand for, you know, national self-determination struggles across the board, independent of, without regard to who their enemy is, whether it's the U.S whether it's Putin's Russia or, or whatever it would be. Okay, yeah, Brendan, if you I, want. I don't really have anything to add on that one. Okay. Um, there's a message that says, if you're trying to send in a chat, make sure the blue box on the chat box says MHI host. And to click on it if it says something else, so that you get a um, in the drop-down menu. Does everyone see that on the bottom of the chat? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, 
I believe that uh, Brendan, you wanted to ask about the Grossman classes. Do you want to do that now? Oh uh, yeah, we're going to have two MHI is hosting two classes um, discussing Henrik Grossman's breakdown theory and a criticism that Andrew has written of Grossman. We talked about this in the podcast, and I don't off the top of my head remember which episode it was. Um, we had a nice long discussion about Andrew's paper. And we also talked about the Grossman stuff um, when we interviewed a Grossmanite author. Um, Andrew, do you remember the, the guy's name off the top of my head? Or your head? Ted Reese. I don't remember off the top Ted of your Reese. head. I remember it off the top of my own head. head. Yeah. Ted yeah. Reese. Um, so we've covered it. And maybe listeners are somewhat familiar with the issues. Um, and we're going to, these classes are also going to have some guest speakers. Um, Andrew, who are those people? Yeah, we have uh, four discussants. There's going to be two classes. Uh, and I, I just sent a, a link to the MHI host, which is the uh, article in with sober senses just announcing the classes it's got a zoom link for how to uh, participate you know participate in the classes you go on the zoom uh it's got some more stuff among the things that are discussed uh in the article are who the discussants are going to be there's going to be more stuff added to that article um and you know so i hope to have like a, just a, a little outline uh, of what's going to be co covered on a given day. Uh, I might have some slides, study questions. I hope to have some study questions uh, added to that article within the next few days. So there are going to be two classes, each two hours. Uh, the first class is September 24, and the discussants are going to be Alan Freeman, uh, who you know I've worked a lot with uh, in the past, uh, and Esteban Mora, an economist from uh, Costa Rica. And then two weeks later on October 8, uh, second class, you know, same basic topic, uh, Henry Grossman's uh, breakdown model and breakdown theory. And uh, so I'll be talking again, uh, you know, giving a, a presentation and followed by two discussants. And they are going to be Nick Potts, who I've worked with for a long time. And um, Sebastian Hernandez Solorza, who I believe is uh, on the uh, Zoom call today. Uh, I saw him before. Uh, so we'll have two discussants again. You know, I'll present, discuss and comment, another discuss and comment, and then uh, we've got chat. Uh, the chat will work uh, pretty much like the chat's working today, but it's not going to be as uh, rigorously, you know, moderated uh, and, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, people should be able to ask comments, should be able to ask questions, uh, make comments. And I also hope to, you know, look at the chat from time to time during my presentation. So it's not just me standing up there, you know, lecturing, you know, if people have a, a question about what I'm saying, you know, while I'm presenting, you know, if there's something unclear, I want to kind of like nip all those kinds of problems in the bud. So, you know, putting a question in the chat would be like raising your hand. And, you know, uh, so I'll look at that and try to deal with that at the time. 
So, you know, uh, two sessions, both 1 to 3 p.m., um, both on Sunday, one in two weeks, September 24, uh, one two weeks later than, uh, from that, uh, October 8. They're going to be based on uh, Henrik Grossman's book, uh, The Law of Accumulation and Breakdown of Capitalism, or whatever it's called. Uh, my uh, article, um, you know, talking about why the Grossman stuff doesn't, doesn't work. Um, and uh, so there's a link to that in the um, thing that's just been posted in your chat, Grossman classes, Zoom link and more at that article. Uh, so you're going to see, you know, it's based on uh, Grossman's book, my article. Uh, I, I got some uh, comments and 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 you know, uh, challenges and questions about that article. And I wrote a second article responding to them. So there's also a link to that that might come into the discussion somehow. And then um, Ted Reese, you know, who we had on the uh, on the podcast, I wrote a review of his book. And that that some of that might come into the uh, the classes as well. So at this point, I would say, you know, those are the things to read. Grossman's book, it's only, you know, about 500 pages. You should be able to read that, you know, <laughs> in, in an afternoon. Uh, yeah, uh, very long-winded. Uh, what I would really recommend, if you want to understand Grossman's book and to do it in a quick way, skip all of the literature review, skip all of the polemics, where he's, you know, disagreeing with other people, just just read the rest of it. It's going to be a very partial reading, but it's a way to boil down, you know, 500 pages into maybe 150. Um, you know, so look at that. Uh, look at uh, my first article, second article, and uh, the, the book review of, of Ted Reese's book on Grossman. Uh, and I do hope to, 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 as I said, to in that article where you see the link in the chat, I hope to add to that article with like, uh, you know, a very brief outline of the topics in the first session. And then, um, you know, hopefully some study questions uh, within the next few days. Had to get through today first, and we're, we're getting through today first, but the, uh, if we do manage to make it through the rest of the hour, you can uh, hope for and anticipate study questions coming soon. Okay, and if you forget any of this, it's all in our, um, on our website, on the, um, our publication page, and elsewhere throughout our website. Uh, MarxistHumanistInitiative.org, <clears throat> and you can also always write to us by email and ask what happened to this or that. <laughs> but you'll see it there. Let me let me say just a couple of things. Yes. Uh, more about this in terms of the motivation for these classes. Um, I mean, one thing is the reason this is important is Grossmanism. You know, uh, is not going away. Uh, and I even heard recently that there's this guy who calls himself a MAGA communist, right? Real horseshoe theory. 
you know, he's 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 endorsed Grossman, you know, so he's now in the Grossman camp. Uh, it's not going away and it's not going away for this intuition that, you know, everything's going all to hell, you know, so it's all got to break down and, you know, really doesn't matter, you know, if for whatever reason that that's the underlying intuition. Um, so it's it, it's not going away. The other thing is uh, my article. I, I don't like to take a lot of credit for a lot of things typically. You know, if what I'm saying is not original, I try to say it's not original. This article was original in some ways. It has new results. Uh, I show that the idea of a breakdown tendency of the Grossman type, where there's not enough uh, profit or surplus value to continue accumulation at the current pace, okay, that breakdown tendency that Grossman posited, okay, that is incompatible with Marx's value theory. If technical progress causes commodities values to decline because they don't need as much labor to produce, then the, the breakdown tendency just disappears. Um, so I, th this is a new result. It's obviously an extremely important result when, you know, the whole basis of the discussion is like, well, no, th that doesn't exist. Uh, but it, my article has not gotten the attention that I think it deserves uh, because the immediate Grossman world is, you know, pretending that it, it doesn't exist. With the exception of Ted Reese, um, you know, there should be discussion. We should be separating the wheat from the chaff, the true from the false, looking at propositions, testing propositions. Um, but it's the sound of like one hand clapping at this point. And all, all I can do is try to, uh, at this point, you know, turn more attention, turn a spotlight back back to these questions. Okay, uh, let's take another question. Today, we got a Hegel question. This is from Jimmy Padalano. The negation of the negation, quotes, is sometimes interpreted as an, quote, apparent return to the old, close quote, such as notably Lenin in this abstract of Hegel's Science of Logic. Is there some sense in which Marx's revolutionary humanism or his concept of a negation of the negation uh, constitutes an, quote, apparent return to the old, close quote? Andrew, um, do you, I, I don't know the significance. I have two questions, and maybe you, you understand the significance of them because it's hard to have a to ask Jimmy for clarification. But the quotes around apparent return to the old, do you know what that is a reference to? Yeah, uh, Lenin's conspectus of Hegel's science of logic uh, during the Middle World War mm -hmm. One. You know, uh, Hegel's there. I think he's in Bern, Switzerland, and he rereads the science of logic. You know, this is after the. Um, <clears throat> socialist uh, parties, the, you know, big social democratic parties, they all collapse because of 
siding with their, their, their countries in, in World War I, something seriously has gone wrong when revolutionaries turn into these, these patriots. So Lenin is like, whoa, you know, I, I got to get my thinking right. I can't keep like relying on Kautsky and keep relying on Hilferding and keep relying on all these people, you know, who've capitulated to, to, to the war effort. So he, he, he turns again to, to, to Hegel. And I think it's pretty much near the end of the science of logic. He writes down a list of points and he gets to the negation of the negation and he characterizes it as apparent return to the old. So that's a way of uh, characterizing negation of negation. Okay, that idea of negation of negation, I mean, there, there is that kind of negation of negation, for instance, in mathematics. You know, you've got A. And, and logic, you've got A, you've got not A, and you've got not, not A. Well, that not, not A is a negation of the negation. The negation is not A, not, not A is the negation of the negation, but not, not A that returns you to A. Okay, not, not A is A. So that's a, that's a negation of the negation that is a return to the old. You know, you, 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 now that wasn't what Hegel had in mind when he was talking about negation of the negation. Uh, and actually, in his mathematical manuscripts, uh, Marx is trying to understand uh, the derivative uh, calculus, you know, the differential calculus, He's trying to understand the derivative. And he thinks of it as a negation of the negation. You posit a change in variable X, and along with that, you get a change in variable Y, okay? So that's a negation of where X was and Y was, and then you negate the negation. That's what he thinks was going on with uh, the, the, the English guy who ate the eels, Newton, uh, and, and Leibniz. So they, they, they introduce this negation, then they remove it, Okay, that's how he uh, Marx thought they were really operating, and that's a negation of the negation. And Marx said at this point, the whole difficulty here, as it is in the negation of the negation generally, is understanding how this is different from simply positing a change and then removing it, <clears throat> and leads to real results. Okay, because the you know a not a not not a doesn't lead to anything new. Uh, and so Marx is saying, no, there is something new, you know, with the, the derivative. And if you are, if you've got a revolutionary theory, that's actually a revolutionary theory and it's got negation of the negation, it's got something new. It's not just a return to the old. Okay. So this has to do with, uh, Hegel's concept of, um, transcendence. Uh, or sublation is the, the, the technical term. Okay, it, it preserves what was there. You've got something and you got its opposite. Okay, so that's that's a negation. But the negation of the negation is a new ground. Okay, it no is no longer you know the ground of the thing and its negation, but it moves them both into 
you know, presumably higher level uh, or thinks about them in, in, in a new way. Um, so, um, there's a positive a forward movement because you don't just have what you had before. The content of what was there is preserved. Hegel says in the negation of the negation. Okay, but it's transformed. Okay, so it it can seem in some sense to be like a return to the old. Okay, because the transcendence, the sublation, doesn't just cancel out, eliminate what had come before, but it raises it to a higher level. Uh, you know, in terms of revolutionary theory, the the the, the best. Example that I can give is what Marx talks about in chapter 32 of volume one of Capital, which is the culmination of the book. Um, this is the historical tendency of uh, capital accumulation. He says there's ongoing concentration of capital and the socialization of the workers, uh, you know, united, trained, organized by the mechanism of capitalist production itself, the socialization of labor, the concentration of capital become incompatible with the capitalist shell in which they've been confined, that bursts open, the expropriators are expropriated. Okay, and then he refers to this all as a negation of the negation. He goes back to his discussion of the primary, original, or primitive accumulation of capital. He says the, the, the capitalists expropriated individuals' property. You know, they, they, they took over farmers, individual, you know, peasants' land. That's the first negation, the negation of individual private property, okay? But with the growing centralization of capital going into fewer and fewer hands and the dispossession of more and more people, okay, that leads to a social revolution, and the social revolution expropriates these expropriators. And what does Marx say? It restores individual property. Okay, so in that sense, it's a return to the old. Prior to capitalism, you had the uh, private property of individuals working their, their own land. That gets restored, but it's there's a forward movement because Marx says, well, based on you know the achievements of the capitalist era, this isn't going to be private individual property anymore. Individuals are going to have property, but they're going to you know organize their their production and they're going to uh, produce and own and control you know cooperatively. So there'll be cooperative property, but it will belong to the individuals instead of to alien you know entities called business firms. So, yes, there is a sense in which the old is preserved, but it's transformed. Uh, and that's like the, the best I can do with negation of negation in general, because although negation of negation is always the same process, it, it really is the logic of all transformation of things. A lot depends on the individual circumstances, the individual case. Uh, I, I hope that's somewhat helpful. If not, you know, I mean, Jimmy, write in and uh, or others write in and maybe we can continue this this part of the discussion. <clears throat> well, here's a, a question in the same vein. 
emphasis in a number of eps, you've discussed the Hegelian roots of Marxist philosophy. Do you believe, like Lenin, that one can't understand Marx without out having understood the whole of Hegel? If so, how can a person do all that in one lifetime? And it's signed, um, <clears throat> wait, I can't see the signature. It's signed, not anti-philosophy, but just wondering. <clears throat> Brendan, we can't hear you. <clears throat> Brendan, we can't hear you. Can the rest of you hear him? Oh. Let, 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 while, while we're waiting for the technical difficulties with Brendan to be worked out, uh, let me say a couple of things. Actually, what Lenin wrote uh, is it is Brendan impossible. Oh, he was muted. Okay, Brendan, go ahead. Brendan, unmute. Brendan. While we're waiting, I'll, do, I'll just say what it is that Lenin actual, actually wrote. Uh, and this is in the same conspectus of uh, Hegel's science of logic, uh, interestingly enough. He says, it is impossible to completely understand Marx's capital without having read and you know understood the whole of uh, Hegel's science of logic. Okay, he didn't mean that you couldn't understand anything. He didn't say completely impossible to understand. He said impossible to completely understand. Big difference. <laughs> uh, Brendan, are you there? Can you speak so we can hear you? No. Maybe you need to get off and rejoin. Okay, now, now oh, wait, yay, wait, wait. Yay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Apparently, uh, I can't I can't mute myself and then unmute myself. I just have to leave myself unmuted. Um uh well I forgot what I was gonna say. Oh yeah, I I don't think I guess it depends on like what writing of Marx you're trying to understand. I think if you're trying to read like uh things in the economic and philosophical manuscripts that are Marx discussing Hegel, though that can be very difficult without some kind of background in Hegel or some some understanding of Hegel. But um, I find I find for myself that reading, for instance, Capital is from myself is was most productive when I tried to rid myself of any prior conception of what Marx was talking about, including what I th had read, you know, about Hegel and such. I think I, there were times in my life where in reading Marx, I thought that I needed to understand the intellectual background to certain terms, like philosophically, in order to understand what Marx was doing. But I later realized that that was actually a hindrance to my understanding of Marx, for instance, like in the early chapters in Capital, when he's using terms like universal and general, talking about like the universal equivalent, 
or using the term abstract to talk about abstract labor. I think I was trying, I remember times in my life where I was trying to understand those terms that Marx was using in relation to Hegelian uses of the term abstract or universal. And that really created confusion for me, I realized later. And it was a lot, I mean, I think like a book like Capital, Marx was not writing for people to need to understand a the like some philosophical um, history in order to understand what he's doing there. I think um, it's much clearer if you just try to understand the book with, within, within the context of the book and not bring some other notion to what the words mean to capital. Um, I find that very clarifying for myself um, when I, especially around terms like universal and abstract, because I think I, I, f I was er earlier readings I'd done of capital, I was falling into some of the misconceptions um, of value form theorists that I'd read. And, and some of that was around the terms like universal and abstract. And I needed to like, just rid myself of those preconceptions and just deal with the way Marx was using the terms within capital by itself. Um, that doesn't mean that there are other things Marx wrote, like the critique of the Hegelian dialectic that can really benefit from understanding of Hegel. But I agree with what I think is the sentiment of the person who wrote the message that it would be, it's extremely difficult to get to Marx if you think you have to read and understand all of Hegel first. Um, that's that's a tall order yeah I, I agree with all what brendan said um i agree the text should be approached really in a, in in and for itself you know look at the text don't import preconceptions about what the method is what the structure is i have warned now for a very long time one of the main things if you're trying to seriously read capital one of the main things to avoid is reading secondary authors while you're doing that or recalling what any secondary author has said because they're easy you know that you have difficulty with a passage in Marx your mind's just going to like, oh, well, this means what, you know, so-and-so said. And so uh, now it's familiar. Now it's easy. Your eyes gloss over, you know, you hop from a lily pad to lily pad. You're on the next passage. You, you never learn marks that way. Um, I think it, it's absolutely true what Lenin said. It's impossible to completely understand uh, capital without understanding the whole of uh, Hegel's science of logic. I think there are a lot of other things that make it hard to understand Marx completely. If you don't have a really good grounding in classical political economy, you're going to have a hell of a time understanding in particular the first chapter, mm -hmm. okay? You, you, if you don't know any monetary theory, you're not going to be able to make heads or tails of chapter three on money. So there's a lot of things that one needs uh, to know. So, 
yeah, it, the real force of Jimmy's question is like this infinite regress. And Brendan was alluding to that. You know, well, I got to read all Hegel, but I'm not going to be able to read and understand Hegel unless I understand Schelling and Fichte and, and, and Kant. And really to understand, you know, these people, I, I, I got to read Hume and it all goes back to Descartes. And no, really all of this goes back to, you know, <laughs> Aristotle and Plato and, and, and Socrates and the Okay, you don't have, it's an infinite regress. I mean, even several life, lifetimes wouldn't allow you to do what you need to do. And besides, if you were to do all of that, it wouldn't help. You, you'd be just shot up with so much knowledge. Uh, it wouldn't help you in a particular case of this passage, this term. Here, how do I understand this term? How do I understand this reference? What you got to do is you got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, okay? You, you, you know, you, you're not going to understand everything. You're not going to have the full armature of what you need to understand something completely and then just read the, the, the passage and, and, okay, now it's all clear. That's never going to happen no matter how much you read. Uh, and, you know, again, even if you were to have read everything, you, that, that's no guarantee that you can apply it uh, properly to the situation at hand. So you just got to content yourself with, I understand a little bit more. Well, that's good. Okay. And now oh, I understand that a little bit better. That helps me understand this a little bit better. And then you read a little bit more about other stuff. Oh, that illuminates something for me that I thought I understood and I did, but now I understand it a little better. It's a continuing process. So I would just say, you know, perfection is unattainable. Get off of the idea of understanding something completely. I don't understand anything completely. If I understand it pretty well, I'm extremely happy. Uh, there's so much I don't understand. So little by little, you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Okay, um, we have just 10 minutes more. I think they cut us off or zoomed us. So if you have any questions, put them in now at the bottom of the chat and send them off. But here's one from Jane Michaels. I've recently seen and heard a lot about a new campaign quote, are you, a, uh, are you a communist? Then get organized, close quote. I believe it's headed by the international Marxist tendency, which may or may not be a Trotskyist organization. Another one uh, of the organizers of the campaign are the Socialist Revolution. The movement or campaign seems to be getting traction while also not being obviously Fourth International Affiliated or Trotskyist Affiliated. In fact, it's very hard to figure out what are your thoughts on this? Without knowing a huge amount about Trotskyism, aside from the Vanguard Party ID, what are the dangers of this? And this is from Jane Michaels, host. <clears throat> Jane Michaels was uh, our guest in... Uh one of the episodes very recently within the past few months uh, talking about breaking out of the, 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 the Trumpist bubble. 
uh, was one of my favorite episodes. I think it was really helpful to a lot of people. I don't know anything about this campaign other than um, having just Googled it, Googled it just this minute. Um, so I can't speak too much about it, but uh, I do find their opening paragraph, maybe we could comment on that. They say, we base ourselves on the ideas and methods of Marxism, organizing the most militant workers and youth, intervening in the class struggles, communists, and attempting to build a force that can lead the working class in the fight to overthrow capitalism. It sounds like they're just doing like a recruitment drive for their organization. And they have some goal of um, trying to get a thousand new members in Britain. Um, yeah, the international Marxist tendency is one of the uh, offshoots of what had been known as militant or you know, it had a name, but the militant tendency in British Trotskyism, definitely mainstream, you know, kind of Canaanite, James Cannon, Orthodox Trotskyist, you know, thinks that uh, the USSR was a um, degenerated worker state and all of that. Okay, militant, you know, split into various organizations. One of them uh, calls itself uh, international Marxist tendency. I, I, I think that this other group, the Socialist Revolution, is, yeah. Socialist the, appeal. No, it's not socialist appeal, which is slightly different, but uh, it, it's the IMT's American organization or attempt to form an American organization. Um, you know, and they might be getting a lot of play as Jane indicates, getting traction. Uh, a lot of things have gotten a lot of traction over the years. Um, and Raya Dunevskaya, in her first book, Marxism and Freedom, really clarified the whole thing for me, you know, about this whole idea of the solution is organizing, you know, like people take the, what uh, Joe Hill said when he was martyred, don't mourn, organize. Well, yeah, don't mourn, organize. But, you know, it's become don't think, organize. Um, and goodness, guys said, look, the second international, you know, uh, German social democracy, all the uh, allied organizations elsewhere, okay, prior to World War I, they were organized to the hilt. They had unions, they had women's auxiliaries, they had youth clubs, they had, you know, this and that and the other thing, organized, organized, organized. They were so organized. And then what happens? World War One, And they all become patriots. You know, not everybody, but, you know, you got all these social democratic, socialist members of parliament voting, you know, to lend money for the war effort in country after country, you know, that are fighting each other and the workers in these countries are being drafted and, you know, sent to kill one another. So the whole thing collapsed. Okay. So what Donetskaya said, I think that chapter really just it's a simple thing, but like reflect on it. She says, yeah, they had organization of the yin gang, but what they didn't have was the organization of Marxist thought. And I really think that bears repeating. And in the case of this international Marxist tendency, 
you know, this is their history. They had tremendous successes. They entered the British Labour Party, you know, and it looked like at one time, you know, Trotskyism could challenge, you know, the labor rights, the, the, the Social Democrats for control of this Labour Party. And they were organizing and they were getting bigger. And, and guess what? They just got expelled. You know, Tony Blair comes in and, OK, we're, we're going to have, have a new way of being a member. And all you do is send us money and uh, the, the entire basis of militant vanished. And all of these people who just put all their emphasis on organization, they limp year after year from stunning victory to stunning victory. One stunning victory, then they limp to the next one. You know, like you had like, oh, Occupy, oh, tremendous amount of organization all over. Then what happened to it? Or in Greece, you had Syriza, you know, you had a government and they were challenging the, the, the monetary authorities, you know, uh, the international financial institutions, you know, and then the, 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 the socialist uh, prime minister, whatever, you know, he betrays everybody. Uh, and then, like in the U.S., you had Brennan was mentioning socialist alternative. Oh, they elected Shama Sawant in the, to the city council in Seattle. That's a tremendous victory. Oh, okay. And then you had Bernie Sanders, and there was uh, so they just limp from victory to victory to victory, and nothing stays. Nothing stays from any of this. Because it's all, you know, a get-rich-quick scheme. It's all an attempt to make things move purely by organizing success without any real forward movement of uh, ideas, without really much of anything else. So I, I'm not surprised that they're uh, experiencing organi organizing success. My question is, are, are they doing anything of lasting value? Just the slogan itself is telling that the the idea that are you a communist then get organized um it sort of takes the whole theoretical thing for granted and wipes any theoretical distinctions but within the left under the carpet there's just a a vague um you know, use the word communism as like a vague type of identif political identification without any clarity on what that means, um, despite all the incredible divisions in the left, and then just an appeal to join them and focus on organizing. Um, that's just the opposite of what kind of thing we're trying to do here, where the ideas are the important thing to be developed. Uh, and, and the organizing is about organizing the organization of ideas and building an organization to work on ideas and not just, um, uh, like Andrew said, doing political organizing for its own sake without any mooring in any uh, uh, development of, of the idea. Okay. Um, I'm advised that we don't have to get off uh, at the top of the hour out. So go ahead and send in more questions if you wish to. We uh, have I'm going to I'm going to like maybe 
I, I, I can I can deal with one or two more questions, but I'm, I'm, you know I'm getting a hold. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't want this to, to continue all, 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 all day. You know I think it's been fairly fairly successful, and I think we could you know think of doing it on a regular, semi regular, or whatever basis, but maybe leave something for another day. I don't want to cut off the discussion. Okay. I'm not trying to cut it off, but I don't, I, I, I'm not, I can't do another hour, you know, certainly. Yeah. Oh. I, I think we should, we should put a end to it soon. It's, that's a long, it's a long episode. Okay. Well, uh, it's fine with me, but we have one, uh, uh, one person who's been here for a while. So let me read his. It's actually two questions, but this is from Seth M. Are you fam familiar with the term zombie science? Regardless, how does Marxist humanism distinguish its defense of Hegel and Marxist theories from its critique of other old social theories that become attractive within the contemporary left. I guess you could each take one of those and we get through it. I don't know the just the significance of the term zombie science. I'm not familiar with it. I'm not either. Never heard of it. What what is it, Seth M? Can you tell us? I don't know if I understand the, the the I don't know if I know the background to the second half of the question either, or at least what the distinguish its defense of Hegel Marxist theories from its critique of other old social theories that become attractive within the contemporary. Yeah, I, I mean, let me just say one thing. I mean, MHI has. As far as I know, no position on any theory of Hegel. You know, you can you can be a good member of the organization and not subscribe to any particular thing that Hegel says. Uh, I, you know, I don't think there's anything that Hegel said. You know that any of us would endorse uncritically. Uh, and even with Marx, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a Marxist humanist, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, that I am committed to much less feel the need to defend lock, stock and barrel, everything that uh, Marx said. I think he, he, he did a, a great job, a tremendous amount of the time. Uh, but I, I think to, to answer your, your, your question, Seth, uh, more particularly, we, it's something one has to deal with a case by case basis. For instance, with the Hegel stuff, I mean, a lot of people say, oh, you know, we're Hegelians, we love Hegel and so forth. But if you look at, let's say, for instance, Raya Dunyevskaya's uh, understanding of Hegel and what she takes from Hegel and so forth, it's really different and in fact uh, at times the opposite of what uh, other so-called Hegelians are saying. And uh, Chris Arthur, you know, who's a value form theorist, the Hegelian philosopher, in fact said that. He says, "My, I, I think it would close to a direct quote as I can give, my use of Hegel's, my use of Hegel is the opposite of Dunyaskaya's, I think is what he wrote. So everything kind of depends, 
on on a particular case. Um, if you know you're willing and you got time to come in more specifically, maybe we can deal with one or two, or two cases. Well, he uh, he has come in with this explanation of zombie science. He says generally, zombie science revives absolute theories in the present. Absolute. Oh. Uh, obsolete theories in the present that have been refuted or rejected within the scientific community. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's uh, kind of complicated, but I mean, Marx, I think more of, I think, I think the way to, to understand Marx, at least in relationship to developments in uh like say economic science after marx is just that people after marx uh were asking a different set of questions and the, the whole field shifted in a different direction i think if you're trying to understand the nature of like, the capitalist mode of production then dealing with what marx is the, the like framework that Marx sets out is it's it's kind of the only game in town for having that discussion for um, anti-capitalist politics. There just isn't like an alternative, uh, like a, a cogent. I hate to use the word holistic, but you know, all-encompassing theory of the capitalist mode of production that is like internally consistent and and allows you to understand the, the the details of capitalism and the project of overthrowing capitalism or overcoming capitalism there isn't like that hasn't been supplanted by any newer theory it's just that the field of economics asked today asks different questions and is is just shifted to a totally different space there's a lot of claims to have disproven things about Marx, but those aren't really, that's different than, uh, I don't think those are like true claims and those claims aren't actually um, claims that like economics is doing something better than what Marx did. Really, it's just the, 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 the basic ground of the theory, the, the field shifted in a different direction. I think it's very different than like, the sort of zombie science that Seth is referring to where um, sort of fringe theories that were discredited long ago in the natural sciences emerge in like the modern disinformation space. Mm -hmm. um, that would be my way of thinking about it. Yeah, I'd be interested in knowing the context because oftentimes science turns back on itself you know uh the idea that uh the the solar system or the the whole thing was had sun as the center not the earth that was a very very old idea it got rejected but you know then it came back with uh, you know copernicus and, and and galileo and stuff so it was rejected and it came back and now of course it's accepted uh you know or you had the um, tectonic plate shift theory of uh, what was his name? Wagner? Wag 
you know who I mean. Anyway, he he didn't quite have the theory that would enable him to to understand the, the shifting of the tectonic plates. But basically, this guy said, you know, all of these different uh, continents were originally one continent, and then they broke off. And everybody was like, no, you're nuts. Okay. Well, you know, the, the scientists got some additional knowledge. They were able to now have a mechanism that allowed this to happen. And now that's like just accepted. So uh, things do reappear. They've been rejected. Uh, sometimes the rejection is just based on prejudice. Sometimes it's based on people did their best with the knowledge they then had. New knowledge came along. So... I don't know. I mean, you know, then there's like, you know, pseudoscientists uh, glomming on to old discredited things. Uh, that's been going on a long time. Uh, in the USSR, uh, for some reason, you know, they seem to have had a penchant for Lysenkoism. Uh, this, this idea that uh, traits could be passed down through uh, something other than genes. You know, like, so you, you develop habitual traits and that could be absorbed by the offspring, you know, somehow. Um, that was totally discredited, but that was there in uh, official or semi-official US, USSR doctrine. Yeah, Alfred Wagner, yeah. I get him confused with the, the, uh, the veggie tray Crudite people. <laughs> Running. What's what's the name of that grocery store? Oh, um, yeah. Is it Wegner's? Wegmans? Oh, Wegmans. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Wegner's is what uh, Doctor Oz called it, right? Yeah. 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 Um. Um. All right. Well, I'm glad we had the zombie science. Dr. Oz tie in there, however strange it was. Um, um, yeah, that, I mean, you kind of have to deal with those things in a case by case basis, I think. Uh, the a reappearance of old ideas and their validity. Um, anyway, um, should we put a put a, a close on this? It's been a good discussion. Yes, I think we should. I just want to repeat some announcements for one minute, but I want to also thank the hosts for their um, interesting and intelligent answers. Uh, let me remind everybody that this podcast will be available on YouTube. I don't know how quickly, but if you can't wait, you can go and look. Secondly, that there's going to be a brand new episode of Radio Free Humanity. It'll be number 101, and it should be released on Friday, September 29. And then I guess they will try to continue every two weeks thereafter. Next, I want to repeat for anyone who missed it that the class in Grossman's breakdown theory and other crisis theories is going to be September 24 and October 8. Two weeks and four weeks from now, same time, there'll be a Zoom. And you should look at our um, 
uh, with Sober Census page or publication page of our website, there'll be continual uh, information about that. Um, lastly, before I thank everyone, uh, I urge any listeners who are not on our mailing list, if you didn't get the recent um, MailChimp mailing, uh, to make sure you get on our on our mailing list, which you can do by clicking on the contact page of our website up at the top. There's a contact page. Put in your name and email, uh, or you can just write to us the way you would write to us about anything. That is, send an email to mhi at marxisthumanistinitiative.org. Finally, I would like to thank Brendan and Andrew, and they would like to thank the people who made this episode happen, especially Aaron Williams, Gabriel Donnelly, and Francisco Palacios. And they also want me to thank the audience for participating and for watching. And Andrew Clark. Oh, yeah. Thank her as well. Yes, she sure. did a lot to make this happen. Okay. Thank you all. Thank you Thank all. Thank you. Where's yeah. our music? We were going to have some music with us play us off. Okay. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye.